Towards the end of World War II, my country detonated atomic bombs over Japanese cities, immediately killing thousands of civilians and thousands more soon after, and maiming thousands for the rest of their lives. I was born in 1949. My generation was taught that this military action was required to end the war, and I bought it. Since 1945, our world has filled with more powerful atomic bombs, in the hope that the threat of mutual destruction will dissuade their usage. So far, besides Nagasaki and Hiroshima, we have been lucky, but for how long? Why do you poison me? The Department of Energy here. Come up here. Come up here, you coward. Come up here and speak to us. I'm Alan Winson, and this year, 2023, for Passover, I walked with peace activists from Las Vegas to Creech Air Force Base, the center of U.S. drone warfare, and then to the Nevada nuclear test site where, until the early 1990s, my country detonated over 1,000 atomic bombs, mostly in the Nevada desert, on land previously occupied by the Western Shoshone indigenous people. The craters that were left have been used to train astronauts navigating the lifeless terrain of the moon. I went because I wanted to learn why, for the past 40 years, people of various beliefs and ethnicities gathered in Las Vegas to walk the 60 miles to the entrance of the Nevada nuclear test site, where armed military stopped them at a broad white line in the desert road. Why each year they went to plead for an end to nuclear armament, when the need is so dire and change so impossible. This eight-part podcast series will tell the story of each day of the Nevada Desert Experience's 2023 Sacred Peace Walk. Okay, here we go. Uh, We'll begin this BCR podcast series with a bit of atomic bomb history. I visited the Atomic Museum in Las Vegas on the Friday before the Sacred Peace Walk and talked with Joseph Kent, the museum's curator. Thank you for bringing, for welcoming Barcrawl Radio. Thank you so much for having me. It's you know it's a wonderful experience to be on your podcast. So thanks so much for the opportunity. It's great to be here. What is the history of the Atomic Museum? You said it started in two thousand and five. So the museum opened its doors in two thousand five. Yes, and the. F- Nevada Tesla Historical Foundation, who is our parent organization, they were established in 1998 as a um, nonprofit organization. And so, in order to help preserve and give 
public accessibility to the history of the Nevada test site um, and nuclear weapon testing history, you know, we act as their primary program of the foundation. Can you talk a little bit more about the Nevada Test Site Historical Foundation, which is the core organizer and inspiration for this? Who are they? Was it a particular person that started it? Was it historically based? Is it politically based at all? So, like I said, so we are a nonprofit, private nonprofit organization. And so, really, the foundation came about because of, you know, former Nevada test site workers um, got together and wanted to preserve the history of, of the testing of these weapons um, and also addressing, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly of, of that testing. So preserving the work that they were involved in uh, brought in, you know, their friends from the museum community as well to help develop what we see here today. So you say the workers uh, from the Nevada test site, the original nuclear test site, formerly called the Proving Grounds, right? Um, who were these workers? Can you name anyone in particular that was uh, pivotal in getting this started? Oh, I mean, there's a, a whole slew of them. Um, uh, Troy Wade, Bruce Church, uh, Linda Smith. There's a whole wide range. And what, and what of kind of work were they doing? So some of them were involved in more of, you know, they were test directors or, you know, working more from the administrative side of things. But we also had a lot of our uh, founders who were engineers who were working, you know, boots on the ground as well. So a nice representation of all of them. But um, part of you know, the big thing is preserving that history is, of course, of preserving and addressing some of the concerns that came out of the testing as well. Around the same time that uh, the museum opened, there was also the nuclear testing archives. And so those are, uh, they're overseen by the um, the NNSA's uh, Nevada field office. And so they're the ones who maintain the records um, for, you know, the NNSA, DOE. So they have all of the employee records and all of the information related to the actual tests themselves. And of course, you know, what we do here at the museum is, you know, preserve the objects and tell that story. But the archive is a huge resource for that. Right. And the objects that are here at the museum, which we'll take a look at a little bit later, um, who had the wherewithal to think we need to save this stuff? And was, was it put in a place before the museum actually was uh, thought of? Well, that, that's, see, that's a great question. So I mentioned in 98, you know, that foundation was formed. And, but that was something that they had discussed for, for years up to that point. And so out at the Nevada test site, which is now called the Nevada National Security Site, of course, you know, they had things basically, you know, in warehouses or, you know, still at the site and just sort of left there. And so the discussion started about, you know, how can we preserve these? So as we go through the museum, you'll see some of the larger artifacts that we were lucky enough to be able to actually acquire uh, on loan or otherwise. Um, one of the ones that sticks out to me is um, a fever, and this is going to be a, a whole different podcast in itself, uh, but the Phoebus reactor engine, which was part of the, uh, a series of um, programs trying to develop nuclear rocket engines for space travel. Right, so uh, you first had Project Rover, and then you had Nerva. So it's all about trying to create vehicles that could be propelled using 
nuclear rocket or nuclear. See, that's one of the things that I love about working for the museum. And, and I always tell people when they come through the doors, you know, it's important for us to, to let people know, regardless of, you know, what age they are, remind them that we're not here to change anybody's opinions on things, right? We're really here to help inform people's opinions. You know, we oftentimes talk with former test site workers, and I think the, the general perception is that the test site workers were pro using these bombs, but the opposite. This is where I come from, yes. So the the opposite is kind of true. A lot of the test site workers, especially the boots on the ground test site workers, understood the importance of testing these weapons and having them, but no, most of the ones we've talked to did not want to see them used. There was never a detonation that you weren't scared. You get to the countdown and one of those 10, 9, 8, every clock you can think of but three ahead. You stand looking out into the distance with goggles on, and all of a sudden the sky lights up, everything lights up. And once the light dims a little bit, you can take your goggles off and you see the shock wave coming across the desert. So you watch this wall of dust, very thin dust, racing across the desert at you, and of course when it gets to you, that's when you hear the first noise from the explosion. See it here recognize that it's a very, very terrible weapon of war. And when you see one, you understand what it can do and why it must never be used, but you understand the value of having it and having your enemies know that you're not afraid to use it if you want. And so we take it as a responsibility to not go down that path again. You know, we want to highlight the history. We want to discuss the the good and bad and ugly like i mentioned earlier but you know discuss you know why they were used how they were used what the science behind it was the history of it but also don't want to see this happen again we don't want to go down that path again and that's one of our biggest responsibilities is we preserve the history so we don't have to go back down that road okay and I, I would like to get more into that discussion as we move on but um may i ask you who visits the atomic museum i mean do, do you find do military people come here is it just civilians is it children oh, it, you know it's it's surprisingly a wide range uh but i think i mentioned earlier there's about you know 90 percent of our uh, guests who visit the museum, they do so from outside of Las Vegas. So nationally, internationally, uh, we get folks from California, Arizona, New York, Germany, Japan, you name it. Um, so we, we see a lot of that international and national travel. Um, and they, they tend to be, typically our general uh, audience, tends to be between 35 and 54 years of age. Uh, but we often see a lot of uh, multi-generational, diverse families coming in as well. Um, and we're really fortunate to have a, a great relationship with um, local educational institutions um, like University of Nevada, Las Vegas, uh, the Clark County School District, as well as uh, Nevada State College. And, and so because of that, we're able to bring in a lot of uh, students to the museum and that we typically do fourth grade and higher, um, you know, bringing those in. And one of the things I'm proudest of is that through uh, sponsorships that we have, we're able to... Um, help cover the cost of transportation, other fees for 
school groups coming from you know, underserved communities. And so that's, that's one of the things I'm happiest and proudest about that we've been able to do. Right. When, when the kids come in and see what's going on here, I'm talking about the teenagers and, and younger, do you find that they're sometimes surprised that we actually have been doing this stuff? Well, I think even beyond surprised that we were doing it, but that the Nevada test had ever existed. I, I think sometimes, you know, there's a surprise that this happened in our backyard, right? That's one of the big surprises, especially for local students. Um, but I think the amount of testing, I think, is also a bit surprising to the adults, too. And I don't think it's just the students. We have a lot of adults um, like my age, you know, I'm 35. And so prior to coming out to uh, the museum, I didn't even know that Nevada was a hotbed for testing, you know. So to talk about how 928 tests, nuclear tests were done just 65 miles northwest, it's pretty surprising to a lot of people. And many of these tests were done above ground, not not in some about a hundred tests were above ground, and then yeah. and then the rest below ground. And we will get more into that. <laughs> but before we get to that, I wanted to ask you a bit about the impact of this atomic bomb idea. It was I grew up with it because I grew up in Miami during the uh, uh, the missile crisis in Cuba, and sticking your head under the table. So I mean, I I have a direct like historical relationship to that. It's created ideas in our entertainment. Um, a movie, Doctor Strangelove, uh, by by Kubrick, um, has created this idea. Of, does the museum deal with that, with the with the cultural impact of the bomb? Oh, absolutely. And you know, we we touch on the global politics of it, the fear of you know possible attack you know and and you know that's a big thing that we discuss um but we definitely highlight the influence it had on pop culture uh, one of the most popular of our permanent exhibits was um or is our pop culture display and so that really includes everything from album covers to uh, children's toys to um, we even have a yearbook from 1953 um, that came from the las vegas high school and that is uh, that it features a mushroom cloud on the cover, highlighting just a local, like just how much of an impact even locally it had, right? Um, and so, of course, it seems odd to the students coming in, especially. You have some of the, the like the parents and grandparents who experienced it, and so it's, it's something that's just almost nostalgic. But for the students coming in, this is something that's kind of bizarre. And so we explain to them that. You know, with the first televised nuclear test, the atmospheric test that you were talking about, there was this craze, this atomic craze that swept the country. And, you know, it influenced everything from um, dinnerware as well as uh, television shows and movies and, and even company logos. So in the 1950s, the atomic bomb was kind of, you know, the cool thing. And it had a bunch of reasons behind it. That's wild. It is, real, it is wild. It's still sometimes it's, it's crazy to see some of the, the things out there, collector's items from that time period that they built around that. It was romanticized. Oh, absolutely. And I think to an extent that's because, you know, sometimes as humans, that's how we kind of deal with things, you know, that, um, you know, you, you romanticize it, you, you kind of make it humorous, and it's much easier to digest, right? And I mean, aesthetically, the mushroom cloud is quite beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. If you don't think colors. about its destruction, it's yeah. quite lovely to look at. Well, you know, and, and I'm so glad you, you mentioned that, because when we do oral history interviews with um, whether they're um, veterans who were involved in some of the tests or former tested workers who actually witnessed the atmospheric 
tests and the mushroom clouds, there is often this common thread where it's terrifying, but it's beautiful. It's terrifying to the amount of destruction that it can cause, but at the same time with all of the colors and the looming above you and the way that it's pulling all the dirt and debris into that, the, you know, from the stem into the cloud, it's beautiful in its own way. So it's this dichotomy. And I think if there's one thing I can say about whether it's about, you know, the atomic testing as a whole or the mushroom cloud, it's all dichotomy. There's, there's the good and the bad. And it kind of, it's, it's somewhere in the middle. You see a lot of that. Mm-hmm. I'm going to let that settle because <laughs> that, uh, that, that, that idea of the good and the bad. Um, during the above ground testing, mm-hmm. people would get up on the roof of the big hotels here yep. and they'd put on their sunglasses and they'd watch because it'd be all scheduled. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. That was one of the big, one of the big um, tourist, uh, we call it atomic tourism. It's one of the big, big things that the casinos like to build around those tests. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. How do you think the fact that Las Vegas is right at the edge or closer to the edge of the testing grounds, has it changed or influenced the development of this city? Do you, do you see any connection there? And do you cover that in the museum? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, I think it's it's something that, you know, because it's atomic testing, people don't think about the ec- economic and other influences it had on the city. Um, you know, prior to the 1950s, the city was, you know, Nevada as a whole was seen as sort of, you know, it's a watering hole. It's kind of a flyover. But with the the, the test site being established in 1950 and then testing the first bomb in 1951, you know, brought a lot of, created a lot of jobs. Uh, for a time, the Nevada test site was the number one employer in Nevada. Um, and it also brought in a lot of government money. And of course, because of those created jobs, the money coming in, that has to be spent somewhere. And of course they spent it in Las Vegas. So in 1950, uh, the population of Las Vegas was about less than 25,000 people. By 1960, it had exploded to about 65,000 people. And now, so, a lot of that had to do with the gambling. That was part of it for sure. But because of the money coming in, they had to spend it somewhere. And the gamble in the casinos were, were there to be, you know, have them so spend it on. There's a synergy here. There is. And it's an interesting because, you know, lo- here, there's a, um, other museums um, that we, you know, love to promote and work with, like the Mob Museum and the, the Neon Museum. And, and oftentimes there's overlap with what we talk about. And, you know, the casinos, of course, are a big part of Las Vegas's history. But because there was all these jobs being created and people coming in with the atomic tourism as well as with, you know, the job opportunities, and they had to spend it somewhere, Las Vegas grew as a result of that. And so, yeah, there was definitely a synergistic aspect of that. Naturally, you know, the casinos, when they saw the popularity of atomic testing and the bombs themselves, they naturally saw, saw dollar signs, right? So in addition to um, the, the viewing parties on the tops of casinos, um, some of the ones that were involved in that would have been like Binion's and things like that. And, and I believe the Desert Inn. So the, the big thing was, you know, in addition to that, where they would go onto the tops of casinos, right before dawn to witness that with their sunglasses. And that's, and that's when the testing usually happened before dawn? Usually, yeah. And so that was because, you know, it was just the best way to 
to get a sense of the mushroom cloud itself, that vis that visual. So you'd see the flash and see the mushroom cloud. Okay, but see. they didn't blow up the bomb for the tourists. No, exactly. Yeah. So that helped them though, the test site workers themselves, because you're know, running tests and all of that. So right before that, you're able to see it a little bit more clearly. And so, but in addition to that, you had casinos, you know, having, um, atomic co themed cocktails and things like that that they would serve so they'd okay 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 yeah. joe so what goes into an atomic cocktail it, is it vodka or gin or i don't have the recipe in front of me but um, i know it always was you meant might start to... an atomic bar here <laughs> yeah. at the... well it's funny you mentioned that we do have a couple of atomic themed bars uh in las vegas but um usually they would have an orange hue to them of similar of course they of course would. would right so a little tabasco sauce maybe. yeah <laughs> So, it, yeah, very much about capitalizing on that. And so events would be planned. And we still capitalize on it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we were talking earlier about the types of visitors we see, right? So you have your families who are here visiting. You have your school tours. But you also have enthusiasts who, you know, read about all the, the Cold War and the, the testing and all of that. And so they want to come here and they go to the different locations, whether it's us or they go out to the Trinity site or out to the, you know, different other museums that talk about this topic. And, you know, they, they want to hit all those spots. So there's still an atomic tourism that exists. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, they can go out to the NNSS too, if they exactly. want. And yeah. see where actually see the craters. Absolutely. Yeah. And the public stores, uh, public tours out there. So yeah, yeah. I mean, you see pictures of them. They're like moon craters. It's still, it's pocketed all around there. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's funny. You mentioned that, um, there was actually astronaut training. Out at, done out at the site in the 60s. And say that again? Astronaut training. At? At the Nevada National Security Site. So Thank when it was a Nevada test site, they actually had training for the Apollo missions. And I can't remember which ones, but um, they had a, several of them where the astronauts would come out with their rovers, with all of that, and they would practice with all of those craters since <laughs> they looked like the surface of the moon. And anybody listening, if you look at photos of the site, you see massive amount of craters and it does look like you're looking at the moon on, on to a, a little bit different topic the atomic museum does not avoid controversies as you as you said before one of the big controversies is uh the decision of the u.s government and military to drop two nuclear bombs on two japanese cities in world war ii bringing some say that brought the war to an end how does the atomic museum approach that should we, shouldn't we, the effect on civilians? And I'm going to add one more thing to it. The, we're in, um, uh, Ukraine is in a war with, with, um, with Russia. Russia is in a war with Ukraine. Russia has been accused of killing civilians. We killed a whole bunch of civilians. Do you deal with that at all? Yeah, I mean, to your point, you know, we don't shy away from it. I mean, we talked about the dichotomy earlier about, you know, testing and, and of course, Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the, the using of the bombs against those cities. And so, you know, one of the big things um, that we do to try and balance the stories that we tell, um, I'll first touch on the um, dropping of the bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So one of um, our exhibits um, is entitled Trinity, Trinity, The Day the World Changed. And it focuses on the Manhattan Project and, and culminates in the dropping of those two bombs. But in order to balance that, we also have a series of photographs that were taken after, I think it was in about 
uh, September 1945 by U.S. Marine. Um, he was there to take photographs of different cities that were impacted by the um, the various bombings, whether it's the you know um, the raids or the atomic bombs themselves. And so we have a series of those photographs in the same gallery highlighting the destruction and devastation caused by these bombs. And of course, because we're a museum that caters to families and to fourth graders and up, we, we don't like to highlight the, the more upsetting images. You know, that's there are there. a lot of upsetting images. Absolutely. And so, but as a way to, to juxtapose, you know, the, the testing and the, the, you know, ending of the war and things like that, we want to make sure that we're showing the destruction. And there's images of people who are there in the rubble, just not sure what to do, yeah. you know. And so in addition to that, one of the things that we like to do with our education program is we like to help um, support different stories. You know, we maybe don't have the space to tell all stories, but we'd like to use our education programs to help support that and to give a platform to those who've been affected. So one of the things that we started back in, I want to say 2020, um, is a partnership with the Hiroshima Peace Memorial Museum um, in Japan. Um, and we do a annual survivor testimonial with them as part of our distinguished lecture series. And it highlights uh, the stories of those who were there, um, typically in Hiroshima, but sometimes we have featured Nagasaki survivors as well. And they talk about being, I think one was 12 years old and, and you know, working and all of this stuff happens and, you know, their families being affected. And so we do that as a way to show that there's a human element to this. Because I think sometimes, you know, we, we think of it as just a footnote, right? That's just, we dropped these bombs, it ended the war, and we continued. But the goal of what we want to do here at the museum is to show the human element. Whether that's showing the destruction of these cities where people are living, but also showcasing the stories of the people who were affected by it. So we definitely address it. And, you know, it's our responsibility, my responsibility as Director of Creation and Exhibits to not shy away from controversy. You, you have to be prepared with this kind of rule to address it head on because people are going to ask those questions, right? And you need to be prepared to tell those stories and to be able to answer those. And I, I, you, you say it's like we've, you know, we, we've kind of moved on, but for many people, we haven't moved on. Um, they'll look back at the bombing and say, well, it was necessary uh, in order to end the war and bring up those, those old tropes. Um, do you, do you, I mean, do you honor those opinions as well as those as saying this was horrific? How could we have done that to fellow human beings? That must be a difficult job as a curator. It, it, it is, absolutely, because, you know, you, you're, you're talking about people, right? It's, you know, often, you know, we focus on the, the science and the history. That's what we are. We're a Smithsonian-affiliated, you know, National History and Science Museum. And so we deal with the history and we deal with the science and we talk about how the Manhattan Project, how these scientists and engineers developed these bombs. But it's not enough just to talk about how they were developed and how they were, um, how everything came together. You have to talk about, like I said, the personal stories. Personal stories from, again, survivors of Hiroshima um, or former test site workers. Because you do want to tell all sides of that story. And so the personal stories also resonate with people a lot more. You know, I can sit up there and talk about 
you know, the devastation of the bombs, but hearing someone who lived it talk about their experiences and getting emotional and, and talking about losing some of their loved ones is going to be more impactful than anything I could say when I'm up there. So working with these groups is, is something that we always try to do, make sure that they're telling their story, not that we're telling their story. The first time we held one of these events, um, and we're usually only able to do them via Zoom. People can come to the museum. But were they done before you arrived as curator? No, no. So this, I started with the museum from, sorry, excuse me. I was with the museum from 2013 to 2016 and then came back to the museum in 2019. So we started this in 2020. And then prior to being director of creation and exhibits, I was director of education. And so, and so prior to this, this testimony of people mm-hmm. and seeing the devastation, that was not done here. That wasn't, no. Uh, we did have exhibits talking about like those photographs that I was talking about. Mm-hmm. But with the education events with the Hiroshima Peace Memorial Museum, it wasn't something that we had done before. And the first time we had done that, you know, talking about how it resonated, you could hear a pin drop, even though it's done over Zoom because, of course, these people are, you know, uh, older and it's hard for them to travel. But even that, just listening to them talk about what they experienced firsthand, you could hear a pin drop. It was an emotional thing. This is new to them. Well, new, new to them in the sense of hearing it directly from the person who lived it. People knew that it happened. And I think in order to convey an impact to people, you have to do it that way. I think it's not enough just to put it on paper and say these are the the events that unfolded. So, you know, some in the audience were familiar in the sense of what you're talking about. The bombs were used, it ended the war, all of that. But hearing from someone who was on the other side of that, I think really helps to it allows, it really helps them to reconsider things a little bit more. And I mentioned at the beginning that our goal is never to change opinions for the people coming to the museum, whether for events or just to walk through the galleries that we have. The goal is always to leave them with an informed opinion. You can come and, and be against testing. You can come and, and feel that it was justified. But all we ask is that you listen. Reconsideration of one's opinions is not easy. Mm-mm. A lot of people cannot do it. Mm-hmm. It's like almost impossible. Have you ever got any kind of pushback yeah. that said, you're full of you know what? <laughs> well, I'd be lying if I said no. Um, you know, you certainly get that sometimes. But I think when we, and we always try to do that with our tours, we, we tell them up front, like, listen, you can feel the way that you feel and that's okay. Um, and, and that I think goes a long way, uh, to, to having them be a little bit more open minded. Um, here on staff, we have people with a lot of varying opinions, various coming from various backgrounds. And so, you know, we all have different personal views, but we don't deal with that. We deal with, this is, you know, the discussion and you can leave feeling the same way you came in, but just be open-minded to what we're saying. Uh, both the history, the science, but also the the conflict of it too. But most people are fairly respectful. Um, we've had, I would say in the six or so years I've been with the museum total, I've maybe had, you know, I could count on one hand the number of incidents that I actually encountered. Great, great. It, and it's testimony to how you're handling it. I'm speaking with Joseph Kent, Joe Kent, Director of Curation and Exhibits at the Atomic Museum. This is Bar Crawl Radio. Um, we're talking about the controversial aspects to um, 
what you're covering here, the issues of atomic warfare, atomic bombs. Uh, one of the uh, outcomes of the above-ground testing was fallout. Mm -hmm. There was actual real fallout, and I mm -hmm. know they tried to pick times when the fallout was blowing away from Las Vegas, but that wasn't always true, but it was always blowing somewhere. Well, Do you deal with that? So usually they would try to make sure that there was no wind at all, or it was minimal, it wasn't going to blow. Um, and of course you're going to have unfortunate incidents of that, uh, no question. And one of the, the big focal points of museum moving forward especially is, again, telling a wider wider array of stories, not just from the perspective of the test site itself, but also from those who are affected by the test site. Well, the message was, we need to have nuclear testing in order to protect democracy, and that the government will keep you safe from any of the ill effects that might occur from that. Um, right now, I think we tell a, tell a good, we tell that side of the story for sure. The fallout story. Yes, absolutely. I think, you know, we do focus on, you know, we do explore the negative health effects as a result of the testing. Um, that ranges from mentions of the troops who are involved in the Desert Rock military exercises, as well as those who are impacted because they live downwind of, of the Nevada test site. And, you know, we tell those stories. But as, you know, with the other side of it, we also talk about, we also use our education programming to help create a platform for people who are impacted. Um, last year, um, I believe in the summer, we had an individual who lived um, on a ranch, just, uh, you know, pretty much bordering the test site. And she came in and discussed what it was like to be a child during that time and also spoke to the the impact that the you know the impact the bomb had on her on her neighbors and her her family and the kind of health effects that they had and what did she say there. just in briefly yeah. i can't recall specifics but you know it she wasn't had, good it wasn't positive. no no and you know and i think you know one of the things that she says and you know we hear it a lot is you know it was one of the things where they understood, you know, whenever you know, the testing first started, the, the importance of it. But as they saw the, the the impact it had on their health, you know, negative impacts on their health, you know, it when you see neighbors dealing with different, you know, whether it's cancers or other issues like that, you know, it, it you know, and I think for us, it was a way to say, you know, we don't shy away from this stuff. You know, and, you know, there's ways that we, you know, look to, to, you know, tell that story in the museum. But we also want to make sure that we are bringing people in who, who lived it, who experienced it. Because people are going to, one of the guiding principles for me as the director of curation and exhibits is we can't shy away from these topics because people are going to ask those questions. And it is our responsibility to discuss it. Um, you know, we're here to specifically talk about the, 
the nuclear weapons testing, the program, you know, especially here in Nevada. But at the same time, though, we do have a responsibility to tell the the full story, not just the testing. Which includes the possibility that we need nuclear weapons for protection, that kind of right. thing? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the new exhibits that we have is called um, the Bomb Without the Boom exhibit. Um, really highlights the National Nuclear Security Administration's stockpiled stewardship program. And it's all about ensuring that the stockpile of weapons are remain safe, reliable, and that, you know, if for whatever reason, if they ever needed to be used, that we know that they are, like I said, you know, they're safe and they're reliable. And, and really that maintenance happens without resorting to use of underground explosive testing. So that's the biggest thing that we stress is that they do maintain the stockpile of weapons in the, the program and that every laboratory has a role in that. And they, of course, you know, make sure that all the components work as intended, but there's no, but they do so without exploding anything out in the desert, you know, in terms of the underground testing we were talking about earlier. Right, right, right. It's interesting that you use the term safe mm -hmm. uh, because there's anything about these bombs that are safe if they're used correctly mm -hmm. um, and they act efficiently the way they, they should. Um, there have been any number of um, possible accidents mm -hmm. in which, um, you know, technical accidents or someone made the wrong decision. The Dr. Strangelove scenario. Mm -hmm. um, do, you, do you deal with that, with the fact that there could be and there have been accidents that we have gotten close, but it, it was stopped? So we do touch on it a little bit. Um, I know we, for instance, have... Um, you know, collection of DVDs in our museum store that addresses that. So, you know, we sell those and they talk about the accidents. We do talk about um, accidents such as the Bainberry event or, or Harry, where there, you know, things happen as, that were unplanned. Um, you know, we do discuss things like, you know, um, if something, you know, um, gets misplaced or something like that. But because of our focus being on the testing specifically, we don't get into it as much. We tend to focus more on the testing on the sites versus, you know, the nukes themselves being, you know, you know, misplaced or whatever, because that's more of a stolen or Yeah, that's more of a, a government side of things. You know, they it can is address part of those. the story though, isn't it? Well, of course, but but more so speaking about the testing side of things versus the stockpile of them. We focus on how they were tested. Um, the stockpile stuff that we focus on more is is the current discussion about how they're maintained. And when I say safe, I mean in the sense that that they don't go off accidentally or that they would be a dud. You want to make sure that, and like I said earlier, no one wants to see these used. But if for whatever reason they need to be, you want to make sure that they are going off without any issues. That, that whole question, I brought it up to my students. I'm a college professor at, in, in New York. And um, they, were, they were one, a lot of them didn't even know mm -hmm. this was happening and this had happened. And then they were baffled with this question of, you know, we need to keep them so they keep us safe so we can't use them. But if we use them, it's the end of mankind. Mm -hmm. 
Um, it's that whole scenario that is just unthinkable. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure you think about it all the time. And I guess you're here to try to get people to face that fact. Yeah. Right, right, right. Absolutely. Right. No question. That's, like I said, our responsibility is to you know, tell the story, but also, you know, to learn from that. Okay. Right, right. right. Um, two more questions. Um, one is that uh, our government is in the process of, and you've already kind of started to say that, is checking that old stockpile, and some of the stockpile is really old, mm -hmm. old bombs, mm -hmm. um, but then modernizing them, making new bombs, making them better, making them, using the word safer, mm -hmm. so that accidents don't happen. Uh, there's also the new um, supersonic uh, delivery systems. Do you deal with that at all? No, because typically, you know, and, and I'm glad you brought that up, and we, we focus more on the history side of things. Uh, we, you know, because a lot of this is newer, and we have as about as much information as, as the general public does, because we are a private nonprofit. So we're not, we're not part of the, the U.S. government in any way. So because of that, we don't have as, we don't have any more information than anyone else does about it. And so we tend to focus more as a museum on the history of the testing and the history of nuclear weapons, as well as the science behind them. Right. And, and, and the Atomic Museum is not supported in any way by the U.S. government or military? Well, you know, we get, um, you know, sponsorship from different organizations, but not fully funded or overseen or maintained by any government um, organization. No. Great, great, great. I'm going out in the desert with the Nevada Desert Experience. I'm sure you're aware of who they are. And they're anti, well, I guess anti-nuclear. They want to get rid of nuclear bombs. I think we all do. Um, do you look at all about uh, nuclear protesters? Do you, do you look at, because it's been a lot of protests about nuclear bombs. Mm -hmm. um, do you look at that history? Yes. And, you know, it's, it's interesting you mentioned that. I know uh, in one of the videos that we have where we talk about the, um, the veterans who are involved in the Desert Rock military exercises, we also talk about the peaceful protests. And, of course, you know, um, if they got out of hand, arrests were made, but we do discuss it. Uh, but up in our collection, and this has been something that, you know, in the future would be great to, to have as a temporary exhibit, but we have protest signs up in our collection room that we would like to incorporate in some way. Uh, Joe, Ken, thank you very much. I think we're going now to go take a look at, um, at the museum a little bit, and you're going to show me your favorite uh, exhibits, maybe? Absolutely. I'd love to. Great, great, great. They asked our company to go out for one shot and watch them from the trenches and then walk up toward ground zero. They put us in the trench early in the morning and told us to not look toward the black, look away from it.
protest. That being nuclear weapons testing. is located at uh, 755 East Flamingo Road uh, in Las Vegas. And we are open uh, 9 to 5 every day. And um, we're a, actually a, an affiliate of the Smithsonian Institution. And so, you know, with that, uh, of course, you know, comes a lot of great uh, events that we partner with them on, as well as uh, some one-of-a-kind artifacts that we get to show off. So our website is atomicmuseum.vegas. Everybody pulling together, it became a, a real concerted effort on everyone's part to make sure that what we were doing was going to be successful. 